TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. In Overnight America continues with this hour going back into history and talking about Ulysses S. Grant. Joining us now is the director of a documentary. His name is Jim Finn. Thank you so much for coming on to KMOX. Thank you. The Annotated Field Guide of Ulysses S. Grant is the name of the documentary. And I guess the first question is, how did you get a time machine to go back into the 70s to film this? Yes, thank you. I um, really felt like I, want, I wanted to shoot this thing on 16-millimeter film because uh, what, what kind of sparked the whole thing was I had actually found a brochure uh, that my, my grandparents had gone and gone to the Chattanooga and Chickamauga Military Park, and, they, and my grandfather had a Vicksburg book. And I was, like, I was like, I didn't even know there were these military parks. I guess I, I thought there was something there, like a statue or something. But I didn't know there was a whole kind of military park kind of thing. And uh, I really like this idea of kind of just shooting on 16 millimeter. You have these, these small Bolex cameras that were made in the 50s, 60s, and in through the 80s, and they never die. They'll live forever. And so you can just keep people keep filming these things because they're so beautiful. So I just went down and went on this road trip, put about, I think, 5,000 miles in my car right before coronavirus hit, luckily. So I got a lot, I got a lot of nice American travel time before everything went to hell. Yeah, and with this documentary and just watching it, and I, I've been able to check out some of it, the first thing I thought of was, wow, they really kept into the spirit of what I remember documentaries and the way that they were and presented as like an educational film. And I, it must have been fun to put something like this together. Did you have to study the style of these types of documentaries? Like it was almost like a PBS type of documentary. Like an old school one, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I grew up in St. Louis, and so we used to sort of wait for the arch and, and have that beautiful ma- making of the arch movie that you'd watch on the 16-millimeter film before you'd go up there. And yeah. that's actually just a really great film, kind of like these kind of this kind of working-class uh, men hanging, smoking cigarettes, about to die, and somehow they never do die. You know, there's, <laughs> there's all this sort of stuff. So I, so I, really had, I really wanted to kind of reference that kind of idea and of course, the kind of you know major film that was made uh, was the Ken Burns documentary. And so, where do you go from that? You know, you got to either make it more exciting, more awesome, or you know, more violent or whatever. Or you can kind of like I just decided to take this other path and kind of go in a little 
uh, meandering little tour of these kind of places. And they do feel a little bit kind of haunted, some of these places. And then, of course, and maybe I don't want to jump ahead of your questions here, but, um, you know, a lot of the uh, smaller battles are underwater now because the Mississippi moved. And so that's sort of a whole other thing that I was really trying to find these small little battle sites. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And being from St. Louis, how many years did you live here? Uh, until I was 20, I grew up here. So Yeah, did you spend time at Grant's Farm growing up? You know what? I guess I went there. I don't really remember it well. And I have no memory of being anywhere interested in Grant at all. Because he was just some, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And I think because of the Chernow book and I think because of, you know, things like Black Lives Matter, stuff like that, there's like kind of a reassessing of like what, what what happened in this country in the 19th century? You know, like what's going on here? Why are we having these weird divisions, all this kind of stuff? And I thought this was like old history. And then there's like still this kind of like raw you know, uh, these kind of battles are still being uh, still being uh, kind of fought, at least in people's minds. And I went I actually went to to Stone Mountain, which I hadn't been to in years. And, uh, you know, that's very weird. There's this giant Confederate monument. You're like, OK, this thing is very outdated. But then a lot of the people there, it's so diverse. You know, Atlanta is like so diverse. So it's like I kind of got to see firsthand this kind of shift of Georgian demographics and stuff. So it, it's very weird, and I, I but I, one, one of my favorite things about it was going and finding this, trying to find this little battle site in Missouri called Belmont, which is underneath the Mississippi. You can't find it, but you can kind of get close to it. It's south of Cape Girardeau, and that's where Grant kind of established himself as this amazing general who could bring his troops in and then deal with a, a massive setback because he brought his troops into this battle, and they were winning the battle, the Confederates left, and then his men uh, decided to just party. <laughs> they just started drinking, and uh, they, they ate the food. They were like, this is awesome. This is, battle is really fun. You know, this is 1861. This is right at the beginning. They didn't really know what they were getting into. And um, the Confederates had a lot of professional soldiers and officers. Uh, of course, their troops were the same kind of, like, dumb you know, I don't want to say dumb, but you know, they, they didn't know what they were getting into. They were just like okay. men that were young men that were like kind of going and doing this thing. But the officers kind of had an idea because they had fought in Mexico and things. And yeah. so they you... organized a comeback. And then Grant had to kind of move his men out and keep them alive. And he did. He successfully retreated. And it was essentially a failure. But he just called it a success, and everybody was like, okay. <laughs> you know, so there's something to that. I really love it, and that happened in Missouri. So, you know, I love – You know, I never would have really thought about the changing landscape and how that would have buried or made it impossible to get some of these sites even, you know, 150 years ago. The things have changed so much in the landscape in that sense. Do you mind holding on after the break? I'd love to talk to you about some more stories and really what you learned about Grant or maybe some of the things that surprised you about him. Thank you so much. Sure, of course. So he has a documentary out. His name is Jim Finn. He's a St. Louisan in the sense that he lived here for some years. And the documentary called The Annotated Field Guide of Ulysses S. Grant. So much great history to this area. We're going to continue with him next on Overnight America KMOX. St. Louis's traffic station, KMOX. So we're talking about General Grant. So many great things to learn about him, Ulysses S. Grant. In fact, you can actually watch this documentary for yourself because it's part of the St. Louis International Film Festival, which is going on now because of COVID. It's virtual, 
which means if you're to go to cinemastlouis.org and get a link to the film festival, there's a link right on top, the STL Film Fest. You can find ways to stream this in your own home and kind of watch it in your own convenience. He's the filmmaker for this documentary, The Annotated Field Guide of Ulysses S. Grant, Jim Finn. Thank you for spending time with us. Thanks, Ryan. I love the little stories and trying to learn these things. I also am fascinated with how hard it is to find some of these locations. Just your story about going down south of Cape Girardeau to go to a spot that's now covered by the Mississippi that makes it impossible. We had an author on, local author, Nene Harris, who writes a lot about St. Louis history. And she was talking about how she was looking at, uh, her latest book was Oldest St. Louis. She was trying to look at some of the oldest things that are still standing here in the city. And she just was admiring an old house where a guy came out and said, oh, you're looking at this uh, tree out here. And she's like, oh, not really, but yeah, okay. And he said, oh, General Grant ran into that tree back in the day. So she did a little research, <laughs> and as it turns out, yeah, there is history at that tree. So it, the, it's funny learning about these things, and it made me think about you trying to find some of these locations. It's amazing how there's so many historical sites that go undocumented, unnoticed. You know, you go through and you're like, okay, here's a historical site, and now there's a 7-Eleven on the property. No one knows that this happened here. That's got to be, I don't know, for someone that is documenting these things and going through history, what's that like for you? Well, I loved it. I mean, so I ended up in rural Mississippi, and, you know, on Google Maps you can find a lot of battle sites. They'll say, so, for example, in rural Mississippi, Champions Hill. Now, this was a huge uh, Champion Hill. Sorry, it was the Champion family. I thought it had to do with the champions of the battle, but it was just a random name. The, the family owned this huge estate plantation, right? And so I'm going out trying to find it, and these giant men walk, come out on horses, and they have um, guns. And I'm like, okay, hello, welcome. And I've got like, you know, I've got like my New England uh, Subaru. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I just moved to Massachusetts. I got my Massachusetts place. I'm like, great, what's going on, guys? Anyway, they're like, what are you, what are you looking for? I'm like, because I found this one monument. And they were like, oh, yeah, well, that's on private property. Anyway, these guys are like kind of intimidating looking. They got their orange vests. They're on horses. They're, you know, big, on big horses. men. And, and they're and, and they're like telling me where to go, but telling me not to go at this time because it's hunting season and I don't have my, and I did have an orange coat. They're like, you got your orange coat. That's good. But I wouldn't walk across that field. To go to. I was like, thanks a lot, fellas. That's really nice. So, you know, it was very cool. And then one of the things about, you know, the Mississippi, of course, is just is brilliant because it just moved all around and shifted, you know, state borders and everything else. And so one of the earliest battles of the, of, of, that African-Americans were in was Milliken's Bend. And they did not mean to be in the battle because at very early in the war, or mid, midway through the war, I guess, 1863, there was a lot of pressure to have black soldiers be in it. But there was a lot of racism in the Northern Army, and they did not think that blacks could handle it. You know, they were like, they just they can't handle it. We'll take care of it for them. And so there was a lot of pressure from you know people like Frederick Douglass and from a lot of uh, a lot of uh, blacks themselves and a lot of abolitionists things like that, and so they would give blacks jobs in the rear. They'd be like, okay, you guys can you can man you can man the supply depots. And Milliken's Bend was a supply depot for this huge battle site in Vicksburg, Virginia. Well, the Confederates were losing Vicksburg, and they were you know Lee went to Gettysburg to take the pressure off Vicksburg, right? And so one of the kind of brilliant schemes that they came up with was to take out the supply bases and, you know, kind of like 
mess up their supply lines. And so they have these Texas Raiders come in, these Confederate Raiders come in, the Millicans Bend. And I don't, it's unclear if they knew they were black soldiers, but they went into, they went nuts because, you know, blacks, that was a kind of like a slave insurrection at the time. Mm-hmm. They really went, you know, the, maybe some of the rank and file soldiers weren't all like necessarily crazy racist or whatever, but whoever the people were in charge of this particular battle lost their minds and they just started slaughtering all the men. Mm. Luckily, Enough of the men had the training and fought. Probably they just knew they had to fight for their lives. Also, there was a gunboat that helped strafe them. Anyway, they beat them back, and uh, that regiment, that Confederate regiment, became known as the Bloody 16th. And and people thought it was because they were so bloody, but act, because they caused a lot of mayhem, which is partially true. But it was also because this battle at Millican's Bend did a lot of damage to them, and they could never really come back to the same level and 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 this they just kind of kicked them back that was the last kind of attempt they could make at the supply lines in Millican's Bend and that really settled it once people because it was kind of an academic argument like well can black people handle this can but well that this settled it because they could handle it you know they 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 were under trained and so that was a really cool thing so I'm like trying to find that well it's underwater and then then there was a then there were monuments to it in the 19th century so a lot of white Americans recognized in the 19th century the important role of black Americans. But in the early, 19th, in the early 1900s, all of these metal monuments were melted down from World War I. And then, of course, it, then it was like segregation in the South, and everything became politicized in this new way. Well, you know, we can't talk about that. The Confederacy is really great, all this sort of stuff. And so it, it got, the history just got disappeared, and now it's coming back. They're, they're Again, putting new monuments to Milken's Bend, which I went and filmed. But that was just a cool little story that, again, is right up the river from Belmont. I mean, not right up the river. It's obviously two states up. But, you know, this is the kind of little history that I found on the trip that was so fun. That is amazing. And underwater now, you said that you couldn't really get too close to it. But underwater think- and, on, yeah. or on, and, or in, and on private property and stuff. It's very tricky. And then Louisiana, like, you'll kind of drive around, and then they're like, um, again, I would be kind of lost, and these guys and people would be like, "Well, I'm not going to do their accents, but they were like, "Man, this is really <laughs> deep in rural okay, Louisiana," yeah. and they would be like, "They'd be like, I think I remember a sign, yeah, about three so, miles down this road," and I'm thinking, yeah. "Dude, you lived here your whole life, <laughs> you, you, and it turns out that of course they don't notice the sign because the sign was from like the 1930s or 40s or 50s." Yeah. And it's just like rusted out, you know, because it was like, and so it's something you just barely notice. And it, it just reminds me of like, you know, we all live in whatever town we live in. There's these little historical monuments. And, you know, you don't, it's cooler when it's someone else's place. And you figure if you live there, it's probably not that cool, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so anyway, well, it was a- great. And, and I did find some little places. I did get lost a lot. And I found old magazines that would actually give me GPS coordinates before, like magazines from the 90s I bought on eBay. That would give me coordinates, and I'm really glad I bought those because Google is good, but sometimes you can just get a bad spot on Google, and, and yeah. in rural areas, Google can take you to weird areas, and in your you're in a bad loop. Yeah. Google, they mean well, the people that try to put those markers down, but they might not be accurate. They might be working on false information, like they, they thought it was over there, so they'll mark it there when it's technically not the right spot. 
But when you start to do this, this is almost like treasure hunting. It, it probably feels like you have some sort of special map when you open up these magazines from the 90s and you're going to places that no one has been to. You're kind of like a pirate in that sense looking for treasure. Well, I was, I did feel like that. And then I would go and then I would find out like, okay, that champion Hill with the hunters or whatever. I then talked to the people at Vicksburg and they, Vicksburg is like really good about trying to buy the land that did exist, you know? But of course, like sometimes there could be a pretty famous battle, but it's in the middle of someone's property. It's not like I'm the Ed, you know? So it's like, you're not, we're not going to buy their whole estate. We just want to buy one part of your property maybe or maybe it's split between two property lines you know what i mean yeah and but they said that in one family apparently in champion hill which is a famous battle site right outside vicksburg the uh one of the uh one of the people at vicksburg one of the one of the workers at vicksburg told me that there was it was still the same family but they were arguing with each other and so they oh. couldn't like it was owned by different siblings who didn't get along and so uh. vicksburg was sort of waiting to try and buy it so that, that was really great. And then, of course, you know, coming back to St. Louis is great. And just to be clear, like, my family's still here. Reading oh, Kathy awesome. Finn, great. U City, Our Lady of Lourdes Parish. So, of course, we come, I bring my kids in for Christmas every year or come for the summer, whatever. And we luckily, I don't know if you remember, like, last Christmas time, there was a couple of freak snowstorms that happened. Sure. And it was so unbelievably lucky that I happened to be here during snow because, of course, you know, when you're filming all this stuff and you, you need some different weather to make it look like I have a huge crew and I've got a helicopter flying <laughs> me around, yeah, <laughs> you know, because exactly. if you really look at those documentaries, big, big budget documentaries, I mean, they're able to get there right at cherry blossom season at sunrise. You know what I mean? But when you're trying to go on a budget and move between a lot of cities, it's hard to get those great shots. And um, so I, I happened to be this great snowstorm. And I wanted to, and I knew Sherman was buried in St. Louis. I was like, I didn't even know why he was buried here. So I went out to Calvary Cemetery, and we got his grave uh, in a snowstorm. And I got Grant's, uh, Grant's home in a snowstorm as well. And, of course, Sherman was buried here because his son, Willie, died. Mm-hmm. And, Will, and his family was based in St. Louis during uh, most of the war. And so he brought his son, Willie, down, who is his kind of oldest son, to Vicksburg and mm-hmm. Sherman was very proud that he ran a clean camp, but I guess yeah. clean is pretty, um, you know, uh, I mean, this is the 19th century. There's no antibiotics and it's Mississippi and it's the summer. And so of course there was a typhus outbreak and uh, his son got typhus and they brought him back to St. Louis and he died. And so Sherman didn't die. Sherman died 20, maybe 25 years later. But he was in New York and had his body brought back to St. Louis because they wanted to be by his son. Another story there. So many of these different stories you discover and learn. We've, we haven't talked a lot about Grant yet, Ulysses S. Grant. He had an extraordinary story, um, ups and downs, lots of ups and downs. And to his story, I was hoping that maybe we can talk a little bit about what you learned about him. Maybe there's some things we misunderstood about him. Do you mind holding on after the break? That'd be great. Thanks. So, again, if people wanted to screen this documentary, it's part of the St. Louis International Film Festival, and you can go to the cinemastlouis.org, and there's a link to the film festival right up top. You can take a look at all the different movies that are screening, and because of COVID, they decided to do it virtually, which means uh, they even have a little button there, how to connect it to your TV, so you can find ways to watch it in your own home, and this is a great way to 
not only uh, enjoy and learn something, but then you're supporting, of course, people that have put some hard work into things that are relevant. And here in St. Louis, this is very relevant. You learn a lot. Uh, even in Missouri, you learn a lot. And this would be a good one to try to go out there and enjoy. The film festival runs until the 22nd. So you still got a couple of weekends where you can do this if you don't want to do it during the week. Just go to cinemastlouis.org and take a look and try to find this fantastic documentary by Jim Finn. His documentary, The Annotated Field Guide of Ulysses S. Grant. We'll continue our conversation with him next on Overnight America KMOX. And welcome back to Overnight America as part of the St. Louis Film International Film Festival, I should say. And you can go to cinemastlouis.org and actually find this documentary from director Jim Finn. It's called The Annotated Field Guide of Ulysses S. Grant. Thanks for joining us here again. It's It's been, uh, I love learning about things like this. It's so fascinating. The documentary, very unique, and it's nice that people can go online, stream it, and watch it for themselves, be part of that international film festival here out of St. Louis, learn a thing or two about Ulysses S. Grant and the history of America. I think this is important because it's not just about one guy. It's really, it's about learning the history of your own country. It's good to learn these things. Um, I'm curious, when you started to do some of your research on Ulysses S. Grant, going back, reading the books, reading his memoirs, reading other people's memoirs, things like that, what are some things that you learned that really surprised you? Well, I knew, you know, the basic kind of arc of Grant I understood, which was that he was, he had problems with alcoholism and he kind of plowed ahead and was sort of and was stubborn and sometimes he would commit a lot of men who would die and he would keep going and win you know that was sort of the way i understood him and what i kind of found out was was somewhat more nuanced for one thing he was certainly very good in the field he was he could manage an army in the field he learned how to be a, he started as a quartermaster so he knew how to get material and men to the right places he was also personally very brave uh, when he was fighting in Mexico, he kind of ran a line uh, under fire to get, you know, uh, to get past a bell tower where there were snipers. Uh, and he was an excellent horseman. He could, he could run, he could ride horses amazingly. So, you know, that kind of stuff was all pretty interesting. What I didn't really understand was as he got older, he started becoming, he started understanding a little bit more about these kind of wars he had been in. The Mexican-American War was not a did not have good intentions. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't, it, it was, it was somewhat analogous to, you know, or maybe somewhat good intentions mixed with imperialist ambition. You know, uh, it was, it was one of our uglier wars, I would say. And Grant later in life recognized that. And so I think his real moment came at Shiloh when he was on the battlefield and he was not on the battlefield. I'm sorry. He was at the Cherry family mansion, which is like eight miles down river and he woke up in the morning and heard the battle and was like, oh, okay. Well, he didn't allow – there was no defenses. They had no idea what was coming. They were getting ready to sort of invade the South. And the day went very badly. And mm-hmm. Sherman and Prentiss and a number of other generals held their own. Um, people advised for him to leave, and they ended up kind of creating uh, this perimeter uh, long enough to, that the Confederates had to go back to sleep. And, you know, they had, they, there was a lot of delays, a lot of things that went into this. But once they were able to create that perimeter at night and they were able to get reinforcements the next day, they pushed back and won. And so they, he turned this total disaster into a victory. And he did that again and again. 
It wasn't that wasn't the only time. And it was it was, uh, you know, it ended up being very complicated. Also, they didn't have good maps of a lot of places in the United States. Virginia maybe had good maps. But besides Virginia, a lot of, they did not know where they were going half the time. So that was a whole other thing is that rural America was very, uh, you know, very kind of um, what's the word? I mean, unmapped, I guess, or the maps mm. were bad. Yeah. So that was a whole other thing. They had to figure out where they were going. Get so much to learn on the fly. Things are so much different, which is something that's probably good to instill in the younger generation that grew up and there's a smartphone in their pocket and they don't even understand what life was like 20 years ago, let alone 150, 200 years ago. It's pretty remarkable. Um, well, the, the things you can learn. The other thing I was going to say was, so the other thing that happened is Grant was really opportunistic. So when he was moving in, they would they knew that they had friends in the South and they felt, okay, there's got to be a lot of people who appreciate the union, appreciate Americans, appreciate the whole United America in the South. And it turned out that a lot of the white people in the South after about one year in the civil war were not interested in the union or the North. They were like, we don't, we don't know what we thought a year ago, but we cannot stand you people anymore. So like everybody caught the fever. And so they started realizing it took them a long time to figure it out. They were like, wow, why? But like they would get people, uh, people would tell them things. It would be wrong information. Or, and, and so what, but what they slowly started to realize was that every time a black person gave them information, it was correct information. Hmm. And so, it, again, it slowly dawned on them that they had this huge, unbelievably accurate system of intelligence which was the entire massive black population of the South. And these were not only escaped slaves, but sometimes they were like, they were like enslaved people that just would kind of like walk around and kind of visit a camp and then go back into their, you know, into their areas. Like if they were trusted enslaved servants, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so this kind of thing really changed. So for example, when, when Grant did his famous kind of run down the Mississippi past Vicksburg, they needed to cross over and they were planning a big battle against this Confederate garrison at Grand Gulf, Mississippi. And one black man walked into his camp and said, you know, you should really just go down here to Bruinsburg because there's nobody there and you could just, you guys can just cross. And they did it. They trusted this man and it worked and they went around and they were able to kind of encircle it. So that happened again and again. And Grant writes about it in his memoir. But it's kind of something that's like not that exciting. You know, we want to think about this great lone genius. And he was kind of a crazy genius. But part of his genius was able to recognize and, and figure out what, who to trust and where to get information. So that, that thing really was amazing to me. And just the fact that they began understanding this idea of freeing slaves as something that would really – destroy the confederacy that's something that he wrote like there, at this point in the war there was still a lot of like we're we're like two european people fighting each other you know it's like france this is like napoleonic wars a lot of the officers yeah. thought that and it took people a long time of course lincoln and a lot of people frederick Douglass, realized what was really happening but a lot of people were in denial and grant caught on pretty quickly and they started realizing that you know when they would free the slaves, it would really it really messed up the whole Confederate economy and and messed up their whole system. Wow. It's interesting the strategy of that side too, in the way different parts of the war. Uh, let's talk about the film festival, the St. Louis International Film Festival. Are you actually in town now for that? 
No, so it's virtual. Luckily, my program is part of a program that's free, which I really love. And I have been there before. I've been there at the festival a number of times. And when I, uh, like I said, I grew up in St. Louis. I actually, when I was a young filmmaker in the early 90s, or when I was a young aspiring filmmaker, I had this idea, this dream that I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I didn't totally get why. It was like, you know, early 90s, like before the internet, you know, you're like, what? Yeah. And, uh, and so I went to the St. Louis Film Festival, which is at the Esquire Theater back then. And I just, it was one of those things where you could just see films from that would never make it uh, out into the world, really. And, and now a lot of these films can get distributed to a certain degree, but, uh, but nevertheless, it's still like this case where you're really trying to kind of have this kind of market of, of films that are, that are, you know, that are a little bit out of the mainstream, perhaps, or on a very esoteric topic or something really quirky or who knows what. And so anyway, I ended up seeing a number of films at that festival and uh, really inspired me. And so ever since then, I've had a good relationship with it. They've shown my work a number of times and uh, I come and go in St. Louis anyway. I'm here every year. So, yeah, well, that's awesome. And it's kind of cool. I'm sure for your family to have you as part of it and come back and be part of the community for that. And they got to be very proud of all the work that you're doing and, being able to put all this together and I was going through the end of your documentary I decided to kind of skip to the end to look at the different credits so did you use like tops cards as part of the illustrations how does that work <laughs> yeah. so the garbage pail kids in the 1960s I don't know if you remember garbage pail kids right in the 90s or when they were, <laughs> well, sure, in the yeah. 80s right where they were like these horrible babies exploding or snot monster or whatever they yeah. there was this huge boom like oh my god civil wars 100 years early 60s and so they got the, the illustrator, uh, I think it's Norm Saunders' his name, from Mars Attacks. Remember the Mars Attacks illustrations, which are insane. <laughs> Tim Burton made it, turned it into that his movie. Uh-huh. And they were like, we're going to give this guy the job of illustrating the Civil War. And so he had, like, men fighting alligators you know, while they're shooting. And, and anybody that was killed is, like, gutted and their blood is spurting out. It, it's just gruesome and insane. And like uh, you know, of course, Sherman is a Sherman is like a, a crazy pyromaniac <laughs> trying to murder all the Southern <laughs> Bells, and you know all these any, any kind of classic insane image of the Civil War. And I really love that idea of like this kind of like iconography, this this weird, insane iconography of the Civil War. That's like the way that different generations have understood the Civil War. Isn't that something? You're like, hey, if I'm doing this, I can do it however I want. <laughs> if I want to right. tell the story that way, I can. Well, um, I also just really wanted to reference this, like, you know, because it, history is this living thing. Like, we think of it as something, oh, it happened, right? But, but the way that people understand it shifts. I mean, like I said earlier in the, in the program, like, um, a lot of white Americans understood how many black Americans fought during the 19th century. They understood that Grant saved the Union. They understood that, you know, but by the 20th century, it's a kind of all in a fog. And like by, in the 1970s, actually, Grant's Memorial, which I shoot, was falling into disrepair. It had, you know, it was like the classic kind of like backdrop to the Warriors or something. You know, it was like the mm. it was like a post-apocalyptic hellhole. Grant's and everybody's like, who Grant's? Who's that? And so now there's this kind of like, oh, OK, I see, you know, this this person was like, you know, someone who was this key person that that came up somehow moved in and into this historical moment and was able to 
be right at the right time to kind of help activate a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now, the Grant beer, did you feel obligated to try to grow one for the filming? I did. I tried, but it's too itchy. So I, <laughs> I, I did the classic COVID beard, but I, I can't take how itchy those beards are, so I have to keep them kind of uh, <laughs> shorn, yeah. I get it. All right, so do you mind holding on for one more break? I'd love to continue talking about your Let's documentary. Let's do it. I love it. Thank you. Uh, this is fun. Director Jim Finn, and you can find his documentary, which, by the way, is online. It is part of the St. Louis International Film Festival, which is going on now through the 22nd. So you got a couple of more weekends, this weekend and next weekend. you got a lot of great films, including ones that have local relevance, like this one, where you can go online, stream it virtually, watch it on your TV. You can find it on their website. Just do a quick search for the St. Louis International Film Festival. The documentary is the annotated film, uh, excuse me, the annotated field guide of Ulysses S. Grant. And Jim Finn will continue with him next on Overnight America KMOX. Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. It's part of the St. Louis International Film Festival, 29th annual but this year virtual, which means you can watch this documentary. It's about an hour long for you to enjoy. And filmmaker Jim Finn, the documentary, The Annotated Field Guide of Ulysses S. Grant. Thanks for spending this hour with us. I've really enjoyed learning about not only the craft, but everything that you put into the documentary. I'm so happy to do it. So a few things I'm just curious on the back end. So you filmed this thing on a 16-millimeter camera, the different type of lens effects, is that something that picked up on the camera, or did you add those digitally after the fact? Yeah, you just, you know, that's the magic of those cameras. You just get the sun in the weird way, and you get this amazing look. And I really love it. Now, I have to say, I don't recommend it for any inspiring filmmakers out there. I teach at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. My students sometimes want to do it, and I have to, like, calm them down and be like, don't do it. <laughs> you know, just like you've got to know what you're getting into. Like literally I went, I woke up and first of all, I do not like getting up extremely early. I have young children. I've been getting up early when I'm away from my children. I like to sleep in, but of course, like any filmmaker, I got to get my sunrise shot. So I went to lookout mountain Chattanooga. I got up at four or whatever it was in the morning to get my beautiful dawn shot. It was cloudy. It was unbelievable. And it did not register. And I went to Lee's grave. I tried to get Lee's grave, and that part didn't register. I felt like that was the ghost of the Confederacy trying to mess with me. Um, Luckily, I did have a still camera to go in, and I did get a film. I did get Lee's grave in there. I don't know how much longer that they're going to let people in there. They, they, Mm. They used to have it surrounded with Confederate battle flags. They took those down. So, you know, I don't know. That That's a whole other thing. But, you know, I really um, really the other thing I did is I, I when I was working in the sound, I have a, I have a uh, my sound designers, Jesse Styles, Alexander Panos. They really did this beautiful work with the sound. They built this whole sound design. And, you know, and I, I'm working with them. But and then I'm, I have my musicians and uh, um, Colleen Burke is kind of the, the musical guru behind the thing. And she brings in other mu- music. And so when, the, when they're working on the sound, I'm trying to think about the music. So I'm giving her – and one of the things I was thinking about was zombie movies and kind of like <laughs> 70s Yakuza films because I really yeah. wanted this. I did not want that, like, energy of, like, dude, Asha Khan Farewell, Ken Burns. You know, like, I did not want period So I really wanted this kind of, like, energy of, like, these people moving through. You know, essentially the Confederacy was like a coup. 
You know, it was really like a coup d'etat within the United States. There was people who decided that one third of the country was no longer the country. It was now our country. And that was the main thing. And it's now because, you know, for many years in the 20th century, it was seen as, well, there was two sides and they were going up. But the way that the people saw it at the time was the people in the north and the people fighting in the Union Army, the way they saw it was these people are uh, – it's a coup d'etat. They're stealing part of the country. That can't happen. And if you want to try and do it legally, you can figure it out legally. But you cannot do this. And, and I think that's a fair argument <laughs> to this day. And that's what most people thought at the time. And so they're kind of like – I really wanted to get some kind of like – energy of a gangster film like you know just kind of get in there and fight and see what happens which is which is actually how a lot of these people did at the time you know they didn't really know what they were getting into when they started fighting and it just got more and more insane and you know they got good at it so Mm -hmm. when you go to some of these old locations and you start filming of course the 16 millimeter but you start snapping photos in the background, are you secretly hoping when you go back and look at the footage and the photos that you capture like a ghost or something? Oh, I mean, I literally was <laughs> filming the grave of, of of Robert E. Lee and the film Jam. I'm like, come yeah. on, man. Like, what are you doing? And, you know, <laughs> I'm like, of course, like that guy's like, why don't you make a documentary about me, man? Everybody loves me. I was great. You know, whatever he that guy's not that guy's not his history isn't working as well these days. Yeah, you know, but because, gr- like one of the little things about Lee is that he did is that you know when he went to Gettysburg, he had a crew of people grab black families from Pennsylvania and take them and sell them to, to be separated and sold in slavery. Oh, so that no. is just insane. That's insane. Now it wasn't him doing it. You know, he had a group of people doing it. But when people brought it up to him, they said, hey, this is nuts. He was like, you know what? When the Union Army comes, they take our slaves. We're taking your black people. Oh, no. And so it, that that was just something that's like, whoa, we don't learn about that. No, <laughs> you know? there's a lot of things we don't learn about. And we're yeah, we doing ourselves a lot of disservice. things we don't learn about. So the, yeah. the Grant being an alcoholic, to me, is not as big of a deal, you know, compared to that. Like, that's what you're up against. I was like, okay. Yeah. And I, I just I love the fact that there was people like General George Thomas. I, I touch I, I go into him a bit. He's been kind of lost to history. He didn't actually get along with Grant, but Grant gave him the job of holding Tennessee. It was not a very exciting job. Okay, Grant was up against Lee. Sherman got to burn Atlanta, and he got the great job of going to the sea. And and Thomas got this crappy job of holding Tennessee. Well, guess what? The Confederates were nuts. Okay, and so they general general hood decided, you know, what's a good solution to you burning Atlanta? We're going to burn Cincinnati. So they went up and their idea was to maybe burn Cincinnati or maybe they'll get all the way to Chicago and burn Chicago. And if it wasn't for Thomas and his army, which, by the way, had a lot of black soldiers because Thomas Mm -hmm. was not a racist man. He was like he believed that blacks were the same as whites and they could be trained the way whites could. And so a lot of the soldiers in Nashville and in Franklin, Tennessee, were uh, black soldiers. And so that's, again, a part of the, a small part of the film, but it's in there. And I think that it's one of those things where, you know, and Grant gave him the job, almost fired him because Thomas was slow, too slow for Grant. Uh, But, you know, again, it's like, it doesn't necessarily matter how personally well you get along with people. Like he loved Sherman famously and Sherman were like Spock and Kirk, but you know, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, Thomas is like another another little side part of it. But anyway, it's just, just a lot of little stories like that that I came up with and, and found out about. It was just amazing going to all these places. This is good. It's kind of like the markers you found from the 30s that have been hidden. It's good to create your own markers in history so people can discover right. these things, too, throughout the time. And Cinema St. Louis, if you go to their website, cinemastlouis.com, St. Louis International Film Festival. Oh, excuse me, cinemastlouis.org. And right in the front, you'll see it right away, all the information to it, and you can actually find how you can watch in your own home thanks to technology and COVID, but you get to watch it in the comfort of your home, this documentary, The Annotated Field Guide of Ulysses S. Grant. By the way, if people wanted to look you up, what's a good uh, way for them to find you? I've got a website, jimfin.org. I'm on, you know, the usual Facebook and Twitter. I don't really do Instagram. You gotta, I got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you have all these anyway. great photos and no Instagram. Well, that's okay, Director yeah. Jim I Finn. can't keep up, man. I'm not on Snapchat or whatever. <laughs> I can't do everything, you know. <laughs> I get it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, I love the conversation tonight. This is really great, Ryan. I really appreciate all the time you gave me. See ya. Make sure to check out his documentary. This is Overnight America KMOX. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 